Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. You may say, what qualifies us to talk about Buck Rogers? Well, Steve Melching... We were there. The we were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should really have, have Terry Metalis uh, on to say, uh, "Did you think that uh, what did Picard and Buck Rogers have, you know, in common since they both took place in the 21st century?" Uh, but Steve Melching has just completed. It's the Ludovico technique, otherwise known as watching all the episodes of uh, Buck Rogers in one extensive marathon. Well, let me tell you, Kino Lorber put out a beautiful Blu-ray box set of both seasons of Buck Rogers right uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I had not, I kind of, I've always had a soft spot for the show. It's, it's goofy. Uh, I I thought it was goofy when I was, uh, you know, in junior high school watching it. I think it's goofy now, but it's enjoyably Goofy, it's a, and it's a, it's a pleasant memory of goofiness. Yeah, and the box set is really wonderful. And as I was watching it, uh, especially the the second season, I realized there are I think a couple episodes I'd never seen before. So uh, it was it was illuminating. Could we say you went far beyond the stars, Steve? <laughs> far beyond my time. Who am yeah. I? <laughs> what am I? What am I? Uh, I gotta ask because you know Darren and Steve and I are all approximately the same age. Ash is a little younger, so I'm I curious. Am. What did Buck Rogers mean to you? Because I think we were all in like middle school, right? When when Buck Rogers was on, yeah. but you were much younger. So uh, did Buck Rogers have any kind of resonance for you? I mean, we're talking oh, yes. about like this. Okay, yes, it did. Um, you know, I uh, I will never forget watching the pilot of uh of buck rogers because i was uh homesick with pneumonia i was hallucinating i was crazy i was little but i was watching buck rogers and i saw the most amazing perfect vision that i had ever seen in my entire life and it it changed me Mm-hmm. And that was Tweet. Aaron Gray's kind of Wilma Deering walking through old Chicago with that blaster on her hip. And I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> is, what is, is, that, that? is that a girl? <laughs> that's, a, that's my first time I was ever aware of. What are these strange stirrings? What does this this mean? Who am I? Where am I? (laughs) So subscribe today at trexpressplus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the rockets. Darren, it's so exciting. The Inglorious Live Tour 2023 is continuing and with the lead singer, me. And, uh, and, 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 and for and, now, I'm good, and I'm yeah, right, exactly. On guitar, it's Darren Doctorman, and on drums, it's Ashley Edward Miller. What a band! Sometimes I like to switch to drums occasionally and just, yeah. you know, push Ashley off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're thrilled because we are having such a great time, uh, around these uh, wonderful United States, and it's only because we haven't been invited to Europe yet. It's our um, mostly live tour. It's our mostly live tour, and it, it, it's been terrific. And, and we're going to be uh, as 
you know, obviously um, we go every year. It's It's been uh, a long tradition. We'll be back at the San Diego Comic-Con July 19th through the 23rd. And of course, uh, we're looking forward to bringing uh, the great Starship Smackdown back to San Diego. Um, and uh, but uh, then uh, the following week, July 27th to the 30th, we're going to be in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Did I say or, that right? Or Raleigh. Oh, okay. One day I'll get it right. Well, well uh, we're not going to we're going to rally to pronounce Raleigh correctly. We're we're not the only ones. Uh, Guardian of the Galaxy. Uh, Karen Gillan will be there. Uh, Charlie Cox from the, the Daredevil himself. Uh, Paul Wesley, who uh, you know and love from Vampire Diaries. That's right. Um, <laughs> Ian Summerholder also. Uh, Stephen Stephen Amell. Uh, he uh, he did not fail the city. He's going to be there. Uh, and Billy D. Williams. Will he have any oh, Colt forty five? That'll be exciting. Oh, Look who we have here. <laughs> That's right. You surely belong with us here in North Carolina. In Raleigh. <laughs> Find out if the uh, gas mining business is really starting to pay off. Um, Marina Sirtis will be there, feeling great joy and gratitude for her invitation. Uh, okay. John Delancey, uh, coming off his uh, spectacular uh, um, uh, cameo appearance in uh, Picard. I think people are going to have a lot of questions for the great John Delancey. Uh, Brent Spiner will be there. Uh, Gates McFadden. Denise Crosby. Um, and uh, Will it's Friedel. It's going to be a hoot. It's going to be. It's going to be a hoot. But you know what? The, you know who I'm most excited about? And I'm sure we'll be doing the Q&A with him for the our first Q&A with him. Todd Stashwick. Nice. No. Yes. Yes. No. no. I'm therefore going anyway. Uh, <laughs> we are. <laughs> that's going to be great. Uh, he, he's he's hit the convention circuit big time, and I think people are really excited to see him. So uh, I know we are. And he's selling T-shirts. Is he? I think so. Okay. It's now, post. <laughs> if you missed us so in San Diego and you missed us in North Carolina, guess where we're going to be the next weekend? <laughs> next weekend is something uh, big. Yeah, it is. It's the 57 mission, 57 year mission convention in Las Vegas, Nevada with Las our friends at Creation Entertainment. August 3rd through the 6th. That's going to be a big one. Yeah, that's going to be big because I think uh, it's a lot of excitement about Star Trek after Picard season three. So uh, people are going to be there and they're going to be uh, they're going to be excited. Uh, hopefully uh, it would see all these. I can't even begin to list everyone that's going to be there. It's, it's quite a bit of people. But I'm I'm know. trying to arrange some uh, uh, karaoke time. Uh, what? Yeah, what are you, you talking heard, about? You you know what I'm talking about? Karaoke time. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to get involved with uh, some karaoke with uh, people we know. <laughs> oh, okay. I just got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, then uh, the, uh, the following month uh, we're going to be in Austin, Texas, the great Austin, Texas. Don't mess with Texas. September first to the third. Uh, uh, once again, Ashley Miller will be joining us, and uh, the great Jonathan Frakes will be there along with many other members of the cast. Uh, uh, our favorite person, the Another great Galaxy Con. Yeah, and uh, Bill Shatner, of course, will be there. Gene Carlo Esposito, Brett Bassinger from Super, uh, from Stargirl, Chris Sarandon from Fright Night. Nice. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to not get away with not bringing my son because Matt Lanter, uh, who plays Anakin on The Clone Wars, and James Arnold Taylor, who plays Obi-Wan, are both going to be there. I think Isaac is going to be uh, demanding. I demand it. That I bring him to Austin. We'll see what I, happens. I just want to keep walking by uh, the uh, Obi-Wan actors uh, booth and just say, hello there. <laughs> just keep doing it all weekend. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, if you want 
Uh, more information about any of these conventions or Columbus, Ohio, December 1st through the 3rd, go to galaxycon.com, galaxycon.com, uh, where you can find out more of these great GalaxyCon conventions. Uh, if you're interested in San Diego, comiccon.org, and of course, creationent.com for uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. We hope to see you at one or all of these shows in the coming months. And until then, on behalf of Darren, Ashley Miller, myself, keep on trekking all the way to North Carolina and gloriously, of course. Hey, this is Mark A. Alton. And this is Ashley Miller. And, and we, we are, are the Inglorious. <laughs> <laughs> See what happens when this Darren happens. Miss, we miss. We are the Inglorious Trexperts. We are the Inglorious Trexperts. Boy, it just Darren just is not here, and the whole and thing falls apart. Everything goes straight to hell without Darren. You, you know where Darren is? Where is Darren? They're doing a screening for Rod Roddenberry of the Star Trek: The Bunch of Picture Directors Edition. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So he, I guess he's he's going through colon R. I don't, I don't know. I, I honestly, I have no idea. I just know he couldn't be here today. And I said, it's okay because I only have a few episodes left. So I got to treasure the moments. That's right. He's already, you know what this is? I, I think truly this is part of his process of, of letting go of you. And you know, he's just, he figured, you know what? I need to practice not being with Mark. And, uh, and that's what this was about. I think he's going to start pushing you away soon, man. You know what we should have done? We should have just lied and said, Dar you know, Darren and I had a falling out. He's not going to do the show. We're going to alternate. So when I'm on, he's not on. And when he's on, I'm not on because we're not talking to each other and made up just a whole huge feud. That's right. And, you know, I did make up a whole story about trying to parent trap the two of you with like with Rob Burnett, you know, and just we've, we're just we're like we're all conspiring to like get you guys back together. Well, just I got it was. I got to tell you, we are on fire these last couple of weeks, um, and and today is no exception. Um, to celebrate the 29th anniversary of the premiere of All Good Things, uh, we're bringing uh, on uh, bring back uh, the great Brandon Braga, the co-writer of that episode, um, and obviously the writer of so many other great Star Treks. Um, it seems particularly apt in the wake of um, Star Trek Picard season three which really was the sequel to all good things we never knew we'd get. Um, and, uh, Oh, completely. It, 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 and it, it's, it's funny because, uh, it was interesting. Well, you know, to really talk to about, to Brandon about that, because I think we had a very candid and honest and nostalgic look back. It's the kind of interview I couldn't have done with him 30 years ago. Um, oh, this is very different perspectives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 for sure. Uh, but I think, yeah, I, I, you know, Brandon is always a delight on the show. We've had him talk about uh, generations and first contact, and I think he did Trexpert's briefing room to talk about cause and effect. And every day we we had him on during the pandemic. Uh, uh, he, he's always um, very thoughtful, yeah. and uh, and and has a lot to 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 share. And he has really been the keeper of the flame of. Um, next generation he deserves a lot of credit for that is um he's made himself available not to just to us but to a lot of people um you know where star trek is uh is important to them and i think that's uh that's that's terrific 
Do you remember seeing all good things for the first time, Ashley? Oh my God. Yeah. I, I remember just this, all of my rituals for preparing to watch all good things. Um, you know, just right down to making the martini and being ready. You know, it just, it was a big honking deal. And it was an incredibly emotional experience watching that episode. I mean, and the emotions ran the gamut from, oh, dear God, please let this be good. You know, I mean, I kind of felt like it was going to be good. But, you know, there was always that, for me anyway, that anxiety about it. Um, and then realizing, oh, wow, this this is actually working and this is great. And then that feeling at the end of just that, you know, that, that sort of bittersweet yeah. goodbye, you know, I remember, I remember being on set more than I remember watching it. I remember watching it and loving it except for like the last two acts. And it's obviously grown on me because I felt it was very techno babble heavy, but mm -hmm. that the heart of it was so great. And then the poker scene totally stuck the landing on it. Even then I knew it was like one of the great, you know, endings of uh, oh. any any TV show, um, you know. Uh, and it had like, look, I mean, yes, there was a ton of techno babble, but you know what's funny is that's not the stuff I remember. What I remember, no. I remember that poker scene. I also remember that last scene with Q, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it just that perfect button on everything, which then later gets echoed in such an interesting way. Um, like Picard. In, uh, Picard season three with Jack, you know, it's a uh, spoiler alert. But it was just, when it came to the characters, it was spot on. I love the premise. I mean, I just, I, I, I love John Delancey in it. I love the idea of Picard being stuck in time and yep. it popping around the, the three different timelines. It was so inventive and so creative and so smart. And um, at that point, the seventh season had been very uneven. So very uneven, you, you, especially the beginning of seventh season. And then there were a couple of really great episodes yep. peppered in there, like Lower Decks. Um, but uh, but they really nailed it with that ending um, with that two the, the two hour finale, which is a special finale. I remember there was a I think a documentary of behind the scenes that aired right before it as well. Um, Journey's yep. End. Uh, yep. But um, but I, I, it's funny. I remember it like it was yesterday being. You know, uh, I mean, I used to go to the set a couple of times every season for these monster articles I would do. And, uh, uh, you know, I just remember the chaos of all good things. There was a sense of excitement and a sense of exhaustion. You know, Patrick was not a happy camper. I remember that. And him and Rick Colby were not really getting along. But I remember being on the set of the Pastor with uh, Gates and watching them film that. And um, J Jonathan, as always, was just a sweetheart. And, um, you know, I think, you know, Brent Brent was tired. <laughs> he had just yeah. done stuff like Masks and um, Thine Own Self. And I think he was, uh, and now he was playing a couple of different versions of Data again. Um, but uh, it was interesting. And then, I, you know, People like Marina were just upset that the show was over. Like they felt like that it should have gone longer. You know, and that even, if, yeah. You know, but I, I don't know that that ultimately would have been great for the show. I, I think that it would have limped, ultimately limped to an ending instead of going out on the highest of high notes. I don't know, because here's the thing I think it could have been like MASH in a sense that I think they wouldn't have been able to keep Patrick, right? So we've seen when there was somebody like 
a Ronnie Cox come in, how much it could energize the show. Or even if Riker became captain, right? Or and there were some Colonel new Hart characters. And- or you got, yeah, McLean <laughs> Stevenson. Hello, Larry. But um, <laughs> it, 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 it could have been, it's, it's one of those big trick what ifs. It could have been very interesting had the, there, there been, um, you know, they've done eighth, ninth, tenth, tenth season, or it could have been the X Files. Right. <laughs> we don't know. Um, but uh, it obviously didn't happen, but there was an eighth season recently. And uh, and and it, it really does great. pay homage to um, uh, to uh, to to Picard and I mean to uh, all good things. So uh, we th- we thought it was really uh, would be a great idea to have Brandon come and talk about uh, the making of the show. And I think this just caps a great run of episodes we've here we've had here on the podcast uh, between Terry Metalis, Terry Farrell, um, Lawrence Luckinbill. Yeah, the, the Lawrence Luckinbill episode was which was extraordinarily well received. Um, Dave Blass, um, just some really terrific, uh, episodes. So I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm so pleased, uh, that we have been able, um, to do some, some terrific episodes. I think this is definitely going to be another, um, highlight of this, uh, fifth season of Trexperts. So, uh, without any further ado, let's bring on, um, executive What's- producer of the Orville, of the end is nigh, a, a writer, a showrunner, a director, a producer, Brandon Braga. So welcome, Brandon. Here you are again. You know, it seemed only appropriate that for the 29th anniversary of all good things, we would go back. I, I can't believe we're still doing these for talking about Star Trek. 29 years since you made this freaking show. Yeah, it premiered May 23rd. Yeah. All good things aired May 23rd, uh, a week from today, 29 years ago. And but, yeah. But all- all kidding aside, it must feel pretty good when people do these lists of the, the best series finale, you know, Breaking Bad, Six Feet Under, not Seinfeld, not Lost. They always mention all good things. Yeah, I mean, it. it, it I, I watched it again for the first I mean, I hadn't seen it in easily 20 years. And um, I watched it last night, dreading, kind of dreading the experience uh but it it actually was a really good experience, and it was a lot. The story was a lot cleaner than I remembered. Uh, I was worried it was just going to be a mess. It's a wow. it's a very it's look it, when you're writing these things, you, you don't know. You know, it's like I I wasn't in contact with my future self. Uh, you know, now I can look back at my younger self, and 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 my younger self had no clue that the that the episode would persevere. Yeah. Well, I got to ask you because you shouldn't have told me you watched it because I'm like, well, you know, we could vaguely dance around this because nobody remembers it, but now we've all watched it again. Um, So, you know, I'm going to ask you because there's that old axiom, you know, art, film, television, you never finish it. It's only abandoned. So I'm going to ask you that dreaded question nobody ever wants to answer, which is with the hindsight of what you just mentioned, these 29 years, what would you do differently? Really nothing. I mean, it, it, you know, of course, I, I'm, I'm watching this thing and I'm thinking, man, there's no action. There's no space battles. Not really. It won an Emmy for best visual effects, that episode. There are barely any visual effects in it. <laughs> uh, the ones that are in it are, are cool. Uh, but there's not a lot of action at all. 
it's all tension and emotion and it's somewhat cerebral mm -hmm. as well as emotional. And I just was really struck by how little screen time was dedicated to any kind of big action sequences. And uh, it just made a lot of room for good character development and um, and interesting ideas. And I, I don't know that I change anything about it. I mean, of course, I'm thinking, ah, you know, these were the visual effects. This this would never stand today mm. for what it was. It's a nice it's a nice story. You know, and, you, and yet you said on many occasions, you said in a way this was the real first next generation movie. You know that that this this was a, this was a movie. Well, having seen it now, I would say I, I'm going to modify that opinion. Uh, I think the scope of the storytelling and the emotion involved would make it a better movie in some ways. But there's not there isn't enough cinematic action in it, and. It is kind of a conclusion of sorts. So in a funny way, it wouldn't make a good movie. But I just think the quality of the storytelling is more so much more sophisticated and interesting. And it, you know, it shares shares some aspects of generations. There's some there's kind of a time travel element, a kind of a wistful element for Picard. Counselor. What's today's date? The date started 47988. Captain, what's wrong? Four seven nine eight eight. I'm not sure. I don't know how or why, but I'm moving back and forth through time. Um, looking back at his life, there, there's, there are some striking similarities. Um, the difference is that All Good Things was a much better story and a much better story for Picard. But Generations had some big cinematic sequences. Not all of them look good, as we know, Mark. Uh, the Stop saucer. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the... Uh, in, I don't know that if... You know, you couldn't release it today as a movie. It just doesn't have, you know enough action mm, interesting but for what but for what it is it's 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 as ron moore said it's a it's a nice valentine to the show well it's funny because like we're talking about a show that you made nearly three decades ago not to date any of us obviously we were all very young at the time <laughs> 10 11 12 years old when you were working on this and i was writing about it but um so so but i want to set the table a little bit so people understand the magnitude of your accomplishment with this because you were not only writing the finale you were bringing the ship in for a landing with season seven, which had its own challenges. You were writing the movie. You were developing Voyager. Um, you were basically had no hiatus and you were doing 26 episodes a year. So, and this is, and you come in, when did, like, how soon did you start talking about the finale and start developing this? And how did you, you know, how did you just have the bandwidth? I mean, the, I guess, what do they say? The, the, the foolishness of youth. The, I was the, I was I was twenty twenty seven years old, twenty eight years old. I mean, that that first of all makes a big difference. Um, I'd, I'd I'd been on the show for you know four years, um, three and a half four years. It was all really so new and exciting. Um, it, it's a miracle 
you know, that all of these things got done. Because you're right, they were all kind of happening all at once. The only thing I didn't have a hand in was Deep Space Nine, mm -hmm. even though Michael Pillar had asked me to move to that show at the end of season six of Next Generation. And I'm, and I'm really glad I said no, because I wanted to see Next Gen through to the end, not realizing that I'd be working on the finale. That didn't become clear in, in, until it was time to start writing the episodes, meaning we just got through a grueling 24 episode slog and it was time for the finale and, oh, you guys are gonna do it. Um, and Michael was busy with Deep Space Nine and Jerry was you know, busy with Voyager and it fell on Ron and I to do it. And we so were- it felt like you lost the lottery as opposed to you won the lottery. <laughs> no, we were excited. I mean, look, we were, you know, season seven has some real gems in it and it has, and there's parts of it that aren't so good, which is, I guess, true of all the seasons. But we were certainly firing on all cylinders and we were ready to go. And we were happy to be writing the finale. We were even happier to be doing the movie. Um, and the, you know, the finale seemed like our, our day job. Um, I do remember it, we, it was fairly, it was a lot of fun writing it, I remember. Um, there weren't any special challenges. You know, it came, it, it flowed out pretty nicely. Um, Ron and I were in a groove. The movie was a different story. Yeah, which we, which we talked about. Well, one of our listeners actually asked, and I know you've talked about the influence of Vonnegut and Slaughterhouse-Five, but he it was adamant that, um, and maybe you were, maybe you weren't. A Matter of Life and Death by Powell and Pressburger, uh, whether that was an influence at all on you guys when you were writing it. No. Nope. And I, I'm not, I was certainly wasn't familiar with that work back then, and I, I'm barely familiar with it now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, it was um, Slaughterhouse-Five, the, the, the phrase, uh, uh, a man unstuck in time really stuck with, was... Uh, to me, a big idea, the mental illness aspect that he might be mentally ill um, was interesting. Beyond that, uh, everything was different. You know, the book is a, a, a movie, is a, an anti-war novel. I mean, it's a, it's about very, very different things. And of course, on Star Trek, you that you have to explain why the time jumping jumping is ha is happening. Right, uh, right. So it's science fiction. Um, but no, it was it was the Vonnegut book. Mm. Yeah, no, 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 which is which is really fascinating to you know that that as a great template for what you did. But of course, it also built on a lot of the shows you had done, like Cause and Effect, and you know your fascination with these sort of time anomalies and how alternate universes and um, uh, and and that had served the show very well. You know, which is something that didn't come from the original show. It was something that was uniquely you. Well, thanks for saying so. I, I, uh, it's hard to say who came up with what, but I do, I do think that it was a great way to um, look at the show, to be able to go to the pilot, to the present, and to the future. Uh, it was just a really novel way to um, send the show off. What's funny is I remember you guys in one of the early drafts, or certainly in the early breaks, had this great idea that um, they would have to get the Enterprise in the future um, commandeered from the Starfleet 
museum, right? And boy, that idea has 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 <laughs> borne fruit because, of course, Ron ended up using it in Battlestar Galactica, and uh, your old assistant has uh, made good use of it as well. Not that I'm saying he took it from there, but just these great ideas. Um, uh, um, you know, just the great idea is a great idea. Um, uh, you know, so it, it, it totally was a great idea that worked. And if I remember, it was Michael who put the kibosh on doing that. You guys really wanted to do that. Yeah, I, I'm still disappointed. You know, uh, what was it? You know, ended up being a, a medical ship with Be Beverly Crusher at, at, mm -hmm. in the captain's chair. I mean, with all due respect, you needed to see the Enterprise. Yeah. You had enterprise in the in the two time periods, but not in the third. It was lame to me. Mm -hmm. Like it should we should we should have done it? And I think maybe I don't remember Pillar's rationale because it wouldn't have been expensive. It was the same sets, right? You know, what uh, whatever. It, it would have been such a cool uh, thing to do. Um, maybe he felt it was like too much story, but I actually disagree. I think it would have uh, made it even better than it was because the, the ship that the future Picard's on, it's fine. It works. It all works, but it's it's you know it's the three time periods, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's funny too because it would have like, given Jordy something better to do, you know, because it was going to be kind of Jordy's thing, mm -hmm. you know. Right, right. Ren asking a favor of Beverly. Right. And it, it, it's so funny because, you know, clearly that idea works. I mean, it worked great for when 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 Ron did it in Galactica. It worked great in Picard. It worked great in Star Trek Three. You know, so one scene in Star Trek Three that's great where they take they go back and steal the Enterprise. Yeah. So and, it's, and it's, that was we took that's we were took, taking our cues for We were thinking, how do we get the Enterprise in the future involved? And it's like, well, let's do what Star Trek Three did. Yeah. You know, and um, we may have even written it. I don't remember, uh, but I remember chafing at the loss. Yeah. Well, you also lost, uh, to, speaking of things that you lost from that, um, you, you know, there were four timelines originally. There was a whole alternate timeline during the Battle of Wolf 359 uh, that Picard finds himself. And was that a budgetary thing? I'm asking you these things like you did this last week. Was that a budgetary thing? Or, <laughs> well, that, or... <laughs> that, that was a, that was something I I recall thinking was uh, was um, not a bad note. It was a budgetary thing. It was all that one. I do remember Pillar thought it. You have too much story going on. Mm. It feel like three time periods was the right number, you know. Um, and it, it felt, you know, it would have been cool to go back and, you know, the Borg had not been overused at that point. Right, um, right. Uh, and I think it, it just was a step too far. That that yeah. note I agreed with. Right. So when you were first, you know, conceived this and you, I, I, did you even have a room at that point because everyone was kind of off salary? Was it just you and Ron uh, at that point and, yeah. or, or yeah, yeah so, at, that, at that point it was yeah it was just down the staff had probably dispersed at that point except for Jerry and Michael. So, so when you land on a, a, a finale, obviously they marshaled funds. They knew they were going to spend more money on the finale at the end of the series. Um, that was going to take place in three timelines. You're going to have to recreate Farpoint. You're going to have to you know build this other ship and do all this stuff. Um, is there was there a ton of pushback? Were there a ton of changes? 
to deal with the fact that, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, all, over the season, you could amortize the sets. I mean, this is the end of the season. As soon as it's done, everything's getting struck except the stuff they used on the movie. Well, they used a lot of it for the movie. Um, you know, there, I don't remember be, having any budgetary issues whatsoever mm. uh, once the script was written. Um, but, you know, having just watched it last night, it's not a very expensive looking show. Mm. I mean, it, it's really not. Yeah, but at that time to recreate the, the original pilot when the show had, from production standpoint, it changed so much. Yeah, I mean, that had, was a big undertaking. Yeah, yeah they, that's true. There was some production design. The co I remember the, they had to recreate the wardrobe, and which it's been really well done. Um, Card actually looks like thinner and younger somehow in that outfit. <laughs> of course, we used some footage of of, of Jonathan Frakes from that that beardless time period. <laughs> yeah, uh, beardless time. Uh, but, Do not uh, speak of it. Yeah, it was an ambitious show. Uh, Rick Colby, may he rest in peace, he did a really nice job with the show. You know, the transitions are between the time periods are very elegant. They're not overwrought. They're not, mm -hmm. they're just. It's not Highlander. It's not Highlander. It all makes sense somehow. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so putting aside, you know, the, the budget of it all and the production stuff and all those things, I mean, how did you feel? when you typed and even if you didn't actually type it even if ron typed it when you typed fade out like did it did it hit you then that you were typing fade out on the show like what was that what was that process like for you well i usually did the typing and ron did the pacing is how we usually worked and You know, it's funny. I don't remember writing the the moment, you know, the final, there was such a wrestling match over what the final line of the show would be that the there was no like fade out, uh, you know, rip the page out of typewriter moment for us yeah. you know, from a writing point of view. Um, that moment came in person when we went to the set for the poker scene, which was the last thing filmed. And there was this, you know, people were crying. Starfleet Command reports no unusual activity along the neutral zone, and there is no sign of a temporal anomaly. It would appear that I am the only member of the crew to retain any knowledge of the events I experienced. Take it. Any time, Doctor. Four hands in a row. How does he do it? I cheat. I'm kidding. You know... I was thinking about what the captain told us all about the future. About how we all changed and drifted apart. Why would he want to tell us what's to come? Sure goes against everything we've always heard about not polluting the timeline, doesn't it? I believe, however, this situation is unique. Since the anomaly did not occur, there have already been changes in the way this timeline is unfolding. The future we experience will undoubtedly be different from the one the captain encountered. Maybe that's why he told us. Knowing what happens in that future allows us to change things now so that some things never happen. Agreed. Come in. Am I too late? Of course not. Pull up a chair. 
What's the game? Five card draw, juices wild. Come in. Is there a problem, sir? No. I, uh, I just thought that I might, um, I might join you this evening. Uh, if there's room. Of course. Have a seat. Would you care to deal, sir? Oh, uh, thank you, Mr. Data. Actually, I, uh, I used to be quite a card player in my youth, you know. You are always welcome. So, five card stud, nothing wild, and the sky's the limit. You know, it was a very emotional scene. The emotions in the scene, I think the scene works so well, especially because the actors were, they were feeling it mm -hmm. for real. What was, and it was really moving. And um, I was there when we wrapped and it was a, a, a really bittersweet feeling. But of course you're thinking, well, the movie's happening now. And but days later. Days later, but, but, but you are putting to bed this show. And the show is it's it shows the show, and it will always really be a, a television show. That's what it was, and I think there was a there was a real bittersweet um, aspect to it because you know thirty million people watched that finale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was at the peak of its popularity. The show was not the, and you know it was a conscious decision to take it off the air. Um, and move it into movies. It was kind of a, a, a smart idea in some ways, but so that was the weird ending moment was being on the set for the final shot. And then you're right. Like three days later, the movie started shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is crazy because you, you, you don't even have a chance. The cast doesn't have a, uh, you know, recharge their batteries. The people that worked on it, like you guys don't have a chance to kind of recharge. I mean, even during, between seasons, you have a hiatus as short as it was, but between, you know, doing these 26 episodes, including the supersized finale, and then the, going to the movie, it's like there was no time. No. You know, people, you know, my, speaking of my old assistant, Terry, um, who show ran season three of Picard, which I haven't seen yet, um, you know, he he's... You know, he said, oh, he mentioned a couple times uh, to me in interviews that, you know, almost killed him. And I'm thinking, try doing 26, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he was there. He was there when we were doing 26 episodes. Yeah, yeah. He knows. But it's what the weird part, of, you know, work expands to fill the time allotted. Like whether you're doing six or 26, somehow it all seems impossible. Um, One of the things you got to admit, though, about, you know, Picard 
is it proved how much people love those characters from your sandbox you know yep. for everybody you know and i think people start to doubt it with like insurrection and nemesis well maybe uh you know maybe next generation wasn't you know, wasn't that great maybe people aren't as invested in these characters but what picard proved is oh my god people love the next generation they love those characters and um and and uh, you know and obviously meant uh, so much to people and you hear all these people i grew up on that show i watched it with my mom my father you know you know it's really it must be very nice on one hand to hear all that uh love and on the other hand it's, it's like, oh my god it's 30 years ago yeah i mean look the, i haven't watched picard yet because i'm not ready you know um i said goodbye to these characters 30 years ago yeah sure and um i i i haven't looked back and there's something that feels um when i'm ready it'll be glorious to watch season three of picard um season well, one it's a testament to you too that your protege the guy that you know worked for you uh, you know uh, did the show that was so well received that captured the joy and the fun in the heart of what you did all those years ago and that's and that's yeah and i have to be ready to go back to that and i have to be ready to be um envious of the visual effects and a lot of stuff <laughs> like that, you know but uh it's this like i said it's a tv show next gen's a tv show and the the, the two movies that you mentioned i just don't think were, were great movies I mean, with all due respect, I've written crappy stuff too. I don't saying they're crappy movies. This, they just, I don't think the stories were sparking for people. And I'm sure mm -hmm. you would probably agree. You know, yeah. it, it just, there, it just wasn't. And seasons one and two of Picard, I, I've only seen intermittently. Um, you know, I don't think that was what maybe people who love Picard were looking for. Um, you know, I I certainly wasn't connecting to it. I wasn't entirely sure what what was going on. Like Picard's an android now. I I don't know what the hell that the hell's going on. Um, what Terry did was he just went back to the basics and put these fuckers on the bridge of a starship. It may not have been what Patrick wanted. I don't know. I only hear rumors. But if you look at the first two seasons, clearly it's not what, <laughs> what he wanted. But um, you know, you recreate the bridge and you put those people back there. That's exactly what people wanted. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly I mean, yeah. it was a bullseye. And I, and I remember, you know, when the, when the trailer came out, uh, during the NFL playoffs and, um, and I told, I talked to Terry and told him, you, you know, you just got 50 million people watching your trailer, you know, and he was like, is this, are people going to, are people going to like this? Is this like, you know, is this, uh, you know, is it just geezers in space? I mean, is this work? And I said, Terry, people love these characters. Period. See, you taught him so much so well, but the neuroses, you didn't need to give him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no. Uh, Look, no, he, he was just look. I probably shouldn't be speaking on Terry's behalf, but he had he had the same kind of doubts that anybody would have. You know, he took some clearly some big swings with the show, 
But I'm just kind of reinforcing what you're saying. People, yeah, no, I, they no. love these characters. They haven't seen them back together in a television format in the way they, they are accustomed to since all good things. Absolutely. And the Star Trek audience is notoriously critical, as we all know. And uh, so it's got to be super stressful whenever you put something out into the world. You had it with Generations, with First Contact, you know, every time you did. And even with Orville, you had people like, this is the people behind Star Trek. Is this going to be good? You know, is it going to be like Star Trek? So you you face this kind of merciless kind of and now with social media it's even worse because you know back then it's like you you you, you know to see what people were saying on the internet I had to, you had, I had to read Mark Altman's uh special Cinefantastique uh, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly special delivery on print on paper to, to, to know because there was no way to figure out like on these Usenet groups or whatever the hell they were that Ashley was on back then what people were saying and they uh, were all the <laughs> no look it, it it, it's true, and I felt, I felt for, I felt Terry's nervousness, but I just, I just knew that he'd done the right thing with the characters. It was yeah. obvious uh, just from the trailer. I'm like, people are gonna love this, you know, getting yeah. them all back together on a ship. It, it, it's just they're gonna love it, and and. and all good things. You kind of had to deal with evil Patrick a little bit too. Not that it was unjustified, but that he had done over Christmas, Christmas Carol, and then he had directed an episode right before, and then he was going right into the movie, and he had had no downtime, and he was being asked to do you know every interview and entertainment tonight, and he was prickly. I mean, I remember that I was on the set for a couple of days, and he was no picnic. So I can only imagine. You know, oh. I don't know if this is something more Rick was dealing with than you, but. <laughs> At that at that time, Rick Rick was dealing with Patrick. You know, um, I dealt with Patrick when he would direct an episode that I wrote, but and he was lovely as a director. But yeah, he, I didn't really get the full brunt. I didn't get the full um, interaction with Patrick till Generations, and then of course he fired Ron and I in First Contact. Yeah, so there was uh, beyond prickly into in, in just prick. I guess. Just <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it's so funny, just on a personal note, I, mean, I was terrified of Patrick. And I, I didn't feel, you want to talk about imposter syndrome. I was in my 20s. I was, this was a Shakespearean stage actor. This was Captain Picard, you know. I'm sure he looked at Ron and I and thought, why the fuck are these guys writing my movies? I know he did. Now, now when he can get Ross LaMana. Of rush hour, <laughs> but but here's the thing, you know. And then I have to tell you, many many years later, long after Patrick and I were done with Star Trek, we encountered each other at a Star Trek convention behind in the green room in London, in England, and I didn't even think he'd know who the fuck I was. Right, and um, it, it was and he, we just had the the greatest conversation and he could not have been lovelier and uh, ever since that time i don't know what ch what changed but um he's he's a lot nicer now now you might get a different story from terry i don't know right right <laughs> <laughs> well it's you know it's interesting i hadn't really thought about this um but there's a subplot that got dropped but was filmed in all good things about the Torellians 
and the, the Torellians were using the health benefits of the anomaly to restore themselves. Was like this a, a copay? Or well, it like... sounded to me like Michael got his idea for insurrection from this. It sounded like a pillar thing. And it was. Again, yeah. It was. That was not something that uh, Ron and I were, were, that wasn't our invention. Um, and I don't remember, and we, we wrote it. I don't remember if it was shot or not. But it was in there for a while. Uh, these pilgrims that were, you know, there's even a, a mention in in the show about a bunch of ships gathering mm. in the area. Right, right. Uh, and it's never. I don't think, unless I miss something, it's ever elaborated on. No. Is it? So you watched it yesterday. You tell us. <laughs> and there's a reference to a bunch of different ships. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's. Torellians, it might be, but it's like, oh, that's that was that's a that's a remnant of these pilgrims going to get the benefits. And there's, you know, Jordy's eyes age backwards, and there's this little, you know, what the hell's that about? Mm -hmm. so, oh, we're, we're, well, people are aging in reverse. It's having this weird effect. Well, that doesn't really have anything to do with the story. That's a remnant left over. So it must have we must have filmed that storyline and cut it out in editing. Mm, okay. There's, I mean, no that have... there's no reason for this uh, an, an, this anomaly in the Davron system to be de-aging people. And I I have no doubt that maybe Miller probably used it in insurrection. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like I I hadn't thought of it before, and I was like, oh well this this makes sense. Yeah. Your anomaly yeah. should be like Curly Joe and City Slickers. It's one thing. It just does one thing. Well, to me, the cool thing was uh, anti-time, the mm -hmm. time and anti-time collision. Uh, the fact that it was aging people backwards would make sense if that subplot had stayed. As it right. is, it's actually, to me, a flaw in the episode. It's a, a dead-end thread. Mm -hmm. Right. When you come up with these crazy ideas, and I say that in, in a good way, where do they come from? They come from your imagination, or do you do a lot of research? I mean, obviously, you've worked on a lot of shows since, like Cosmos and the Bill Nye uh, project you just finished directing and producing and writing. Um, the end is nigh. But did you were you like deep into reading about me, you know metaphysics and, and and physics and astronomy and all this, or or is it just like your crazy brain came up with this kind of stuff? I think it's just. I think. If there's one thing, and I'm not saying anything new here, it's new to me, that I came to trust as a writer was, is, and it came very late, was my trust in the subconscious. You know, your subconscious is working all the time. And if you, if you commit to it and you trust it, a lot of shit comes out and you don't know where it's coming from. Uh, sleep on it. I think that phrase is a, a legit uh, phrase. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the next day an idea will pop, a solution will pop into my head. You've experienced, we've all experienced it. Absolutely. And that's your subconscious at work. Having said that, you need to feed your subconscious. And I was into science and science fiction uh, in, in terms of reading. I was also really into something that was not in vogue at the time, which was quantum physics. Mm. And the idea of uh, eigenstates um, and multiverses and um, stuff like that that was not at all on the tip of anybody's tongue. And to me, it was gold. Oh my God. 
Will. Will. I know why it's happening. I know what's causing the anomaly. We have to go back. The only place we're going back to, sir, is bed. Damn it, Will. I know why it's happening. We caused the anomaly with the tachyon pulse. It happened three times, Will. We did it in three different time periods. I think you better come with me. Will you leave me alone? Damn it, I'm not stupid. Will, the, the tachyon pulses, they were used in the same spot in three different time periods. Don't you see? When the tachyon pulse used them, I mean, uh, I mean, when the pasteur used the tachyon pulse, then, then we, uh, I, I mean, everything started, Will. We set everything in motion. It, 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 it's like the chicken and the egg. Will, the chicken and the egg. We, we think it started in the past, but it didn't. It started right here in the future. That's why it's getting larger in the past. I think I know what the captain is talking about. If I'm not mistaken, he's describing a paradox. Yes, right, that's it. Intriguing. It is possible. We could have caused the very anomaly we've been looking for. Let us assume for a moment that the captain has been traveling through time. Let us also assume he has initiated a tachyon pulse at the same coordinates in all three time periods. In that case, it is possible that the convergence of three tachyon pulses could have ruptured the subspace barrier and created an anti-time reaction. I see where you're going, Data. And because anti-time operates opposite the way normal time does, the effects would travel backwards through the space-time continuum. Yes, that's why it gets larger in the past. It grows as it travels backwards in time. All right. Just for the moment, let's say that you're right. What do we do? Back well, we go back to the Devron system. He may be right. If we go back to the Devron system now, we might be able to see the initial formation of the anomaly. So when I wrote a show called Parallels in season seven, uh, where, where Worf is jumping between multiverses, that wasn't in the vernacular. I had to explain what the fuck that meant mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because it wasn't a thing, certainly not in movies and TV. So that was my secret weapon with some of these uh, quantum physics concepts. And, um, That's interesting. And and obviously you've worked very closely with Andre Bormanis over the years. Uh, so he, he's the one person who can understand you, apparently. <laughs> and I don't pretend to understand all the quantum physics, but it, it was just <laughs> it was this field of this field of science that a, a handful of books had been written. I remember it was a book called Schrodinger's Cat. It was written in the 80s. It was my first exposure to it. And it was just mainstream enough a book that I could grasp some of the concepts. That's where some of my ideas came from. The, the conscious ones came from. Mm -hmm. was, the, was kind of a physics realm. Well, you know, lately it's, it's been interesting. Because you were one of the big defenders of Roddenberry's box, which has always been very controversial. This idea that, you know, Star Trek is... There isn't conflict. The conflict comes from the outside. It's never between our people. And it seems lately that people have been very dismissive in describing Roddenberry's box and that it hemmed them in, it hemmed them in a lot. You hear a lot of the cast talking about it lately. Um, you know, we, he wouldn't let us do this and we finally get to where do you still feel that Roddenberry's box was a good thing? Do you feel that? That is why people have this incredible attachment to the show because it 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 
showed a better world or, did, or was Roddenberry's box something that needed to evolve? Well, the answer is both. I mean, on a fundamental level, one of the endearing, endearing and enduring qualities of Star Trek is its depiction of the future and humans place in it. There's no question. If it's Hunger Games, you're not going to Hunger Games conventions. Maybe, maybe there are Hunger Games conventions. I don't know. But this is a vision of the future that is uh, is diverse, where diversity is a virtue, where being different is a virtue. It's just a place everyone wants to be because it's a good place, and people and people are good. Picard's a he's a good person. He tries to be. They all try to be. The thing that I thought Michael Pillar did so well that turned the show around was he found the conflict in the Roddenberry box, as you say. But it was really earned. It wasn't petty. It wasn't, um, you know, arguing because someone's argumentative. There were issues that, that he found he found a way to get that conflict. You know, I think of an episode like the one where Worf will not give his DNA up to save a Romulan or yeah, something. Yeah, the enemy, right. It's fucking great. You know, it's just there's this great scene between Picard and Worf that's bristling with conflict. That, that, that wasn't like, but it, it's like if it was real and it was earned, we could do it. But it had to be something that really challenged the characters and keep in mind too that was a klingon so again that wasn't veering too far from roddenberry's tenants that the mm -hmm. aliens would often present you know that kind of behavior um but you know full well that what michael pillar did was he really sharpened the character he he sharpened the characters and he he pushed us to find depth and you know um, but if you really look at Next Generation, it does still adhere to, you know, I think, you know, there's a great show, Darmok. Well, where's the conflict coming from? It's coming from the aliens and Picard communicating with an alien, you know, you, you needed, you needed that. It, it, we didn't veer too far away from it. I really think it works. I really think it works. And I had no problem with it. That Is was, it something you talked about when you went to Orville a lot or or not really? It wasn't as applicable. It was totally applicable. We, we didn't talk. I mean, the, the Orville is its own thing. You know, the characters are a little more contemporary and are neurotic. Right. And um, it has its own kind of sensibilities and sense of humor. Um, so but at its core, we definitely wanted to capture that next gen feeling of of optimism and a, a, a place you're going to want to be. And at the end of the day, people are going to do the right thing. You know, there's no backstabbing. There's no backroom deals. There's no bullshit. I mean, these are people at the end of the day have done their best. Well, one of the most iconic scenes in all of Star Trek history is the poker scene. Had you always planned on buttoning uh, the finale with that, or did that come late, or where, where did you know where, where where was the genesis of that, so to speak? You know, it's so you know, it's interesting. I was reading something uh, fairly recently about some uh, the, someone who lost a spouse, and 
he said, when I lost my wife, I lost half my memories, mm. which I f- had never heard anybody articulate. And I think the true same is true of a writing partnership. You'd you'd have to ask Ron to to get a his perspective. <laughs> but as to to the best of my recollection, the poker scene was a, a happy accident. I don't think we thought real deeply about oh yeah, Picard hasn't been in poker scenes. Mm-hmm. It kind of came. I think it just kind of came to us. And ending with the poker scene felt nicely understated and familial and poignant. And it's so great not to end on the bridge because, you know, almost the episodes end with, okay, you know, there's a little comment and then we go off on it and, you know, executive producer Rick Berman over the optical, the enterprise going somewhere. This time it didn't end there. It ended, you know, in a very intimate with our characters, which is really, I think, why it's so special. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, that final shot coming through the ship, you know, I, th- I think we scripted it that you were going to go through the decks and you were going to see all this stuff. And, you know, we couldn't afford that. I don't even think we had the technology to do that today. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but it was the per- it was the perfect ending. It we knew it was it we knew it was. Um, like I said, there was a lot, the battle royale over what the last line would be. I don't know who the sky's the limit. Um, is what we ended up on, which was the right line. I don't know if that was Rick or Ron or, or me or who was fighting for that. And I don't remember what the alternates were. <laughs> but do you remember seeing it for the first time? I don't know. I, you know, as a co-EP, you were getting them on VHS and giving notes or at that point you didn't have enough juice to really give notes or did you, you know, but did, was there a screening or a premiere on the lot yeah. or? So the first time I saw it all put together, there was a screening on the lot. Um, in the in the Paramount Theater, uh, as it was back then, it hadn't been redone yet, but it was a nice theater. Uh, it was packed. It was friends and family, and um, I don't think there was press there. Um, but it was a very crowded theater, and I remember being a little overwhelmed at, at how at the party afterward. It, w- it was clear to me that people really liked it that it had a huge impact that people were coming up to me and, and and me and Ron and congratulating us. And, you know, at that point, I don't think we were really thinking in terms of, we were just getting through all of it. Um, it was the first moment I realized, Oh, we might have a, this might really work and be something special. People seem to be really, um, really happy with it. Um, but yeah, there was a big, a big farewell party and on the lot and the whole thing. Odd again, it was, you know, a, a giant, a screening and rap party. And then, of course the movie's shooting at the same time. So. Right. <laughs> I, I remember, you know, obviously the success of generations and the, well, the great reception of all good things and everything that was going on, you know, gave you guys a lot of opportunities. One of them is particularly relevant now. Because, of course, you got to work on Mission Impossible 2, and that continues to be Paramount's other big franchise. They have a huge movie coming out this summer. Any memories of, of, of working on that? And, you know, were you there once John Woo got hired? And, uh, you know, who I know is somebody you idolized, and obviously we idolize uh, at least his Hong Kong work. And, um and working with Tom, I mean, what was your, what was that experience like? Well, you know, that... That experience came off of First Contact, and mm. First Contact was a huge success. 
And that's another premiere that I remember at the Grauman's Chinese. And again, no one's seen it yet. And I had right. seen it. I had been uh, fairly involved in all in the various phases of the film, but no one else had seen it. And right. that was a big red carpet premiere. And at that point, we're like, well, we know, we know it's a good movie. Jonathan did a nice job. But who the fuck knows? They weren't going to give a shit about Zephram Cochran or even know who the hell he is. But right. I remember sitting in the back row at the premiere. Um, my mother and her sister were sitting in front of me and a whole bunch of people ahead of me. And I just remember when the Vulcans came, revealed themselves to be Vulcans at the end. The three Vulcan, you know, wise men. One was a woman. Um, and it was revealed to be Vulcan. I just saw heads turn toward each other in delight and, and surprise, including my mother and sister, who knew <laughs> very little about Star Trek, but they knew what Vulcans were. And people cheered, and and I and the energy coming out of the movie to the after party was such that I I I knew it was going to be huge, and then after. After the after party, one of the Paramount movie executives took me for, for a drink, and I thought, "Oh, I'm in the movie. I'm in the movie business now." <laughs> uh, and uh, Ron and I were called in to meet with the uh, John Goldwyn and Don Granger, who were the heads of the studio at the time, the the movie division under Sherry Lansing. Yeah. We were called over. Um, to Don Granger's house one night, not long after. And when you have a hit movie, you're like, you know, you're sparkly. And, Top of the world, Ma. Yeah. And, girl. That, exactly. And Ron and I were the it girls. And uh, it was Mission Impossible 2. I'm a huge fan of Mission Impossible. I was a huge fan of the De Palma picture, which I still like the best. Mm -hmm. And, and I was also a big Tom Cruise fan. So I was all, and, and a Bond fan. I'm like, this is as close yeah. to Bond as I'm ever going to get. Yeah. You know? And so uh, Tom, we met with uh, Paula Wagner, his part, uh, Tom's producing partner Tom. And then we met with Tom at, uh, and his office was on the Paramount lot. And there was a script that had been written, several scripts, but the latest was, I think, an Oliver Stone draft. Uh, of all things, I think about a, a rampant AI <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it was too kind of science fiction-y out there um, and uh, we kind of started meeting Ron and I would drive to uh, Tom's house and um, on the west side and we would just sit in a room uh, in his screening room actually and just talk about ideas and um my my contribution was uh, I I my favorite spy movie and my, probably one of my favorite movies is Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. Yeah. And so there's a a, a, a notorious template used in the picture. Um, but we've just worked with Tom and hammered out a storyline over the over uh, a couple of months every single day. Uh, Tom was super involved. And uh, he, well, Tom wanted certain things. He wanted a rock climbing sequence at the beginning. Like he had certain physical sequences in mind. Um, and uh, 
it was a lot of fun. And, you know, Ron and I moved on from the project to go back to our day jobs uh, doing TV, which yeah. I kind of still wonder if I'd stayed in the movie game, uh, what might have happened. But uh, so John Wu was coming in just as we were departing. So I never mm -hmm. worked with John Wu. How hard did uh, did Tom beat you up over uh, action set pieces? How important were they to him then for uh, for that movie? Or was that like not on his mind when you guys were developing this? They, um, they were, I mean, they were important, but they, but less so like, I mean, like he had a mountain climbing idea in his head. And so we would watch mountain climbing footage and it was becoming obvious that he was going to actually be doing this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, like he'd have that in mind. Um, we would, Ron and I would pitch him ideas like we pitched him this sequence that I think is in there in the beginning where uh, uh, people are on a commercial flight and um, they lose uh, air pressure and the masks drop, but the masks have knockout gas in them. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Tom does a halo or the bad guys do a halo jump, which was uh, something that we had an idea we had had for Star Trek Generations <laughs> uh, that, that Kirk did a, uh, an orbital skydive right and turned out it was based on a real thing and they would do a halo a much better halo jump that tom would do uh in a later movie but um tom was more interested in the emotional maneuvers you know he knew the action sequences would, would come um particularly with with john woo and john woo was was the director at that point okay he just hadn't gotten involved yet directly. And I remember casting was already being discussed. And uh, Who's going to play all the doves that are going to have to fly? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, and I remember, I think Ron and I had a third act, which was, which was a little more uh, Mission Impossible versus Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, more um, a game of wits. And, it, and Wu came in, and I think probably very correctly uh, did... A motorcycle chase right right although it definitely is the outlier in the series i mean Wu is probably really the you know the only auteurs who really ever worked on it were De palma and then woo and then after that it becomes sort of cruz brings in you know jj because he loved what he did on alias and but you couldn't say it's an auteur picture right and even the mccory it's basically Cruz's, you know, guy doing what Cruz wants. It's, it's Cruz, Cruz was Cruz is the auteur of that franchise. Make no yeah. mistake. Yeah, like I worked with him. He is involved in from the story up every aspect of it. I think De Palma had a was able to. I think the Wu picture is too, for my opinion, a little too Wu esque. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, the doves. Um. And it's if you love John Woo, you're going to love that one. It's it's a good picture. It has some good stuff in it. But the De Palma De Palma had a way of of uh, adapting his, you know, he like I think of the Untouchables. You know, he didn't mm -hmm. he brought his own thing to it, but his thing yeah. was brilliant filmmaking, right? You yeah. know, and and the the first movie is it's all De Palma, man. That thing is a De Palma masterpiece, I think. Um, and well, no then, one knows how to move a camera like De Palma. He's great. And then I think the McQuarrie movies are the 
to me, the the best ones since the first one. Like they're they're rock solid. They're very good. Yeah, I, no, they, I have they're a, they're great. Yeah, I have a little trouble remembering the plots. I, I don't. You had to say what happened in Mission Impossible Five, Six. Yeah, I don't. They all blend together. Which I is remember interesting. Bond movies. It's not that way. You could you know exactly the plot of every Bond movie, but Mission Impossible. It's That's like right. there's a chase. He's betrayed. I don't. You know. No, no, no. <laughs> conversation about what's going to happen in the chase. There's the chase. Then you talk about what happened in the chase, and then yeah. there's another chase. Yeah, but right. it works. You know. Um, I will say, seeing the trailer for the new Mission Impossible, it gets the blood pumping, man. Oh, for sure. Such a fucking great-looking movie. It looks so cool. And did you see the trailer, uh, the behind-the-scenes of the oh, stunt? amazing, amazing. So speaking of Bond, I mean, of course, the greatest stunt in history has always been the the the, the parachute ski jump. Yeah. And, at the beginning of love the he's basically doing that on a motorcycle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's a, that whole APK or whatever behind the scenes thing is it, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's 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 incredible. And I, I gotta tell you that I saw it it I when I saw Avatar 2 opening weekend, that was the big marquee trailer, and the audience was fucking into it, man. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Well, you know, I'm so appreciative and I'm always amazed that, you know, after all these years, you have been the best advocate for your show. Like you're out there, you know, uh, you see you doing interviews, you you know, very proud. You know, you haven't turned away from this. You haven't, you know, you, you know you, you've been very good about keeping the flames alive and and um, and just, you know, you, you it's, it's I think it's great that that, you know, You've done this, you know, over the years, and been so uh, such an advocate for the show, and it must be very heartening. And I don't want to open up this whole can of worms now, but even Voyager, which was, you know, a lot of people were critical of, seems to be going through this renaissance now, where there's a whole new generation that's their show, even more so than Next Gen, more so than the original. They just love Voyager, so uh, you know that was your, you know, baby. I mean, you took that over. It was your first show as a showrunner. I mean, so you know, it's just. It must be nice to look back at this huge body of work that you have um, back in the days when you, you know, just were doing these 26 episode seasons. You know, somebody who's been in the business as long as you uh, now would have maybe, you know, 23 <laughs> episodes to their credit after 30 years. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I was involved. I wrote and or produced 300 episodes of Star Trek and that's a that is a huge body of work and a huge part of my life yeah um it was the first 15 years of my career was just star trek and nothing else except uh mission impossible 2 at the in in the midst of voyager i think that was yeah right um and uh it's you know when you're do as you mentioned when you're doing it particularly when you're getting battered by by fans for uh, repeating yourself or doing subpar work or Voyager sucks. and um, But, you know, pe there were people who thought Next Gen sucked too. I mean, they, there wasn't the internet, but believe me, right, right. If, if there had been, there would have been a lot of people uh, shitting on, on Next Gen. Some of it deservedly. I mean, it's not like it was all great. 
you know, it's, um, but I'm just proud to have been part of Star Trek because yeah. I think it's a, a really, um, it's the only, it's the only, I mean, it's a show that is kind of like, wor- it, it's earned its, its place. It's like, it's, it, it's about something good. I mean, it's, it's, it deserves it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think, and I'm really happy to see that it's, conti- you know, it continuing in its current forms, you know. But there are a lot of people when they finish a show, they're done. They turn the other way, they turn off the lights, it's over, right? But you have, you know, despite going on to many other great shows and running other shows and, you know, doing a lot, you, you know, you've always been very loyal to the Star Trek audience. I mean, you're going to Vegas in August to, you know, you don't have to do that. It's not like they're paying you Patrick Stewart uh, fees to be there. You're going because you want to go. And I'm that's going, terrific. I'm going to interact with the fans. Uh, you know, as I you know, Star Trek conventions, I've said this before, are unique in that when you're you step into that convention, certainly back in the heyday, and there you had thousands of people with a shared history. It's a fictional history, but you could stop any person and have a, a deep conversation about Star Trek and 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 the the, yep. the history of it and the 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 narratives and, the, and like everybody shares that in that space. And um, it's just really cool. It's yeah. cool. You know, pe- parents are passing it on to their kids. Um, I work with a young producer named jo- Joe Micucci and his parents almost named him John Luke. Which, wow. <laughs> well, it's yeah. better than Carl Al. At least you can, <laughs> you know, get away with. No, it's not. I'm not okay, naming Star Trek. Mark, you've been, you know, for listeners who don't know, and most of them I'm sure do, Mark was writing about Star Trek and was, you were in the thick of it too, right along with us. You know, we would read Mark's reviews. You know, when something was in print, it, it held more authority back then. Yes. So when As Mark reviewed his capsule reviews, reviews of the episodes, was, was it's really something new at the time. You know, you did. You wanted to make sure you had enough stars on your episodes. I mean, we all look. (laughs) (laughs) I I always give you guys so much credit because, you know, in retrospect, looking back, I mean, you you in particular and Michael were very good about taking the praise and the criticism. And when I was, you know, unfair or negative or cynical about something, you never took it personal. You know, unlike you know, other people on the show. And, uh, I, you know, I learned a lot from that. I'm like, you just can't, you, you, you know, you, you, either you don't, don't read the reviews if you can't handle it or, or read it and take what you can from them. That's worthwhile and discard the rest, but don't take it personal. And, uh, you're taking this very personal. Yeah, but, it's, uh, it's hard. I mean, look, it, it, of course, you, you, it's always a bit personal in that, you want your stuff to be liked, but Star Star Trek's just its own thing, man. Like yeah, I, I, know. I knew I, know. I knew early on you were never gonna please everybody because the show is such a vast canvas and it's so many things to so it's different things to different people, and people like certain kinds of episodes over other episodes. 
You know, there's people who really like my episodes because they're high concept. There are people who don't like my episodes because they're shallow and high concept. You know, it's like some people like the political episodes. Some people hate the Klingon episodes. Some people love the Klingon. It's just, it's, you're never going to make everyone happy. Yeah. I, I just, you know, it's funny. I mean, we talked a little bit about Michael. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a, f- fan of the fact that he forced a lot more techno babble on you in this episode than it really needed but um he was he was just such a terrific guy and i i remember the second season of voyager and i was particularly um not uh not particularly effusive in my praise of that and to his credit he just argued it with me like good-naturedly it's like no i don't understand how you could not like this it was great you're crazy you know <laughs> it was just like and, and, and like to me, that was terrific. And he was like the first person to RSVP with Free Enterprise when we had the screening. I mean, it was like I love that he had that kind of, you know, attitude about it. Where it's like I'm not going to take this personal, and you know, I'm just I'm going to stand by my work. And who the fuck cares what you think? Or I mean, he did a little bit, but at least he, you know, he he, he didn't take it personally. Michael was the best mentor anyone could have asked for. I mean, I mean, I had Jerry Taylor and Rick Berman too, but Michael was my first mentor. And I learned a lot about writing from him and a lot about just how to conduct yourself, you know, when it comes to these kinds of things. And um, he was also a very generous guy in terms of crediting other people and recognizing talent and nurturing talent. And some people describe him as kind of a remote, kind of emotionally remote character. And he could seem that way, but the fact is he was a a really special person. Well, you know, it's funny because now a lot of people are talking about how hard it is to break in because, and it's true because in this business, you want to hire people you've worked with before because you know they're good. You know, they can get the job done. It's, it's not out of any other reason than making television is really hard. So you want to hire the people you know are good. Michael took risks on so many people. Partially that was because of budget, right? But partially it was because he believed in mentoring. And when you look at who's come out of that, the people that he hired, you know, the people that he nurtured, I mean, it's a pretty amazing track record. And he deserves so much credit. For, really does. You know, now, at, at the same time, he was always on the look for his next Jerry Taylor. Like right. he, he was, he was happy to be nurturing us youngins along. Right. And, uh, but he was still looking for people who he knew could could help. Uh, at a higher level. And he kept hiring them and they were terrible. (laughs) I don't know what it was about Star Trek. It's like a peculiar tone or something. Not everybody could quite get it, but um, he was always searching for more. He loved writers. He loved writing. He loved writers. Um, And so he, he loved finding new writers and, and, you know, trying out new writers and, um, he just, uh, he was a great writer. I wish he'd lived longer. Yeah. He would have done, he would have done great, more, more great work on yep. top of the career that he already, that he already had. But, uh, look, you've been so generous as always with your time and we appreciate it. It's always great to, great to talk to you. <laughs> Brings back a lot of crazy memories. Yeah. Um, you know, 
I, I just thinking back about that. I mean, Jesus. Uh, I, I remember, you know, being on that set for a couple of days. And that was back in the day when the publicists knew me so well, they would just say, you know what? We're really busy, Mark. So you just go interview whoever you want. Don't get in the trouble. <laughs> go wherever you want. And, you know, and, and just, you know, be low key, you know? And it was like, now could you imagine? I mean, they, they do junkets with 900 people who have websites in their parents' basement, YouTube channels. And they, they would, you know, and, and, and they sit you down with the talent for, and the publicist is on the phone listening to make sure they don't say anything. I just like, yeah. oh, I could have never worked in that world. No, it was a, it was a particular time. And, um, you were a huge advocate for the show and you're a part of Star Trek history. So you should be, you should go out to the Star Trek day on the strike line. There's a Star oh, Trek day happening. It probably will yeah. have happened. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going yet, but, uh, if I do and you go, I'll see you out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, you, you kind of talked me into it, you know, it's like, uh, I've been over at Fox and, and, um, and Sony, but I was invited, I was telling Brandon before we started that I got invited to Star Trek day. And I, I said, that's very nice, but I never worked on Star Trek, but I, you know, I guess close enough. And I have, you know, obviously so. And, 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 and I think if that gets the guild attention for having all these Star Trek, people, luminaries, whatever, uh, you know, puts in the spotlight, uh, then that's great. So they're going to be I, actors out there. They're not writers. That's true. Nobody will notice where they're there anyway. So <laughs> it'll be all the, all the sad. Nobody knows who's, who's the writers. It'll be all the, all the sad people that are there. Yeah. You know, so who want to end up in the LA Times and in the uh, THR.com. So on deadline. So good. We can just have go grab lunch while they, uh, while I do what they do. Um, okay. <laughs> anyway, Brandon, thank you. This was great. And, thank you. uh, We'll, we'll, I'm sure, talk again. Yep. Uh, Anytime. The, yeah, thanks. All right, guys. Let me, let me okay. pause this. Hey, that was a great episode. That was so totally interesting. Yeah. I, I, those Mission Impossible stories were really interesting, I thought, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there were even stories behind the stories. You know what I mean? It's because yeah. uh, uh, Tom is a very intense yeah. dude. Uh, and I'm sure that that was a very intense, uh, high pressure yet weirdly friendly process. Well, um, that was when they didn't know if it was a franchise because they had, yeah. had one hit film and now they were making the second one. So there was a yeah. lot riding on that second Mission Impossible. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately the, you know, the, the sad thing is that it didn't quite, it didn't quite carry it. Um, yeah. But, you know, that was that's just one of those things where I, I think, like, look, sometimes the chemistry just doesn't work. You can take a lot of great ingredients. Look, you had great writers like Ron and Brandon. You had a great director like John Woo, as you said, an auteur. And you have a great star at the heart of it who puts his all into everything, like yeah. Tom Cruise, who's got more charisma than any 20 actors you put together that you care to name. And it just it didn't quite gel. Although there are things in that movie that I really dig, like there, the, I, I dig a lot of the John Wooiness mm. of it, although it's hardly one of John Woo's best films, but there's, but there are just things that are almost hypnotically 
interesting to watch in that. Film. Totally agree. It's certainly not my favorite Mission Impossible, but there are things, and, it, and like Brandon, Notorious is my favorite Hitchcock movie. That North by Northwest are my favorite Hitchcock movies. So, um, and I can certainly uh, remember it better than the. Um, if we were sort of talking about how, like the you know five, six, you know, the, yeah, they right, all, and they all sort of blend. Uh, and which is weird because is you would think that for me, like maybe it wouldn't blend as much, but it, it just kind of blends. And um, I, I remember things about two that were distinctive. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that climbing scene where everybody said, Oh, it's Star Trek five. Yeah. You know, it's which opens with the, the climbing, the climbing scene. But let me ask um, you something kind of yeah, based sure. on that conversation with, with Brandon. Cause obviously, you know, you and, Star Trek, and and by that I mean the the next generation and those writers. I mean, there's a real history there, right? It's like you are the Angus Krim, you know what I mean? Of, <laughs> of Star Trek. The what I got a silver sphere or what? Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm yeah, more like the. Are you, do you yeah. mean Trent Krim? God damn it! Did I say Angus Krim? You said I mean, Angus Krim. This is, I'm this like, is like, look, people, people don't know what podcast this is. Okay, they know where the ticket is. Oh my it. God! That's yes, so funny. That's better than Pete Pot Whistle. But you know what's even funnier? I knew exactly what you meant. Exactly because <laughs> you, this I mean, is the Inglorious Trexperts. I actually worked with Angus Grimm. We had him on an episode of a show we did, and it was so great. I remember, but Steve Krizier is a huge Phantasm fan. It's like we gotta have Angus Grimm, and we we had at one point we 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 had. The prop master had it. We had to have him do a silver sphere that was like in the room that he was in, uh, because of course it was Angus Scrim, uh, yeah, and he was course. such a lovely guy. So, but anyway, so you're That's saying really, I'm the Trent? For my head was but the Trent Crim of right? Yeah, of, <laughs> of, of, of the uh, independent of the next generation, <laughs> sci-fi independent. And- like that moment when you got like super excited that they totally they committed to total Star Trek, and you're like, no, no, you've been doing this for seven <laughs> years. You finally got to total Star Trek. Um. But I digress. The, you know the that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's total Star Trek, Terry. You get it. Total you, Star Trek. Your entire coaching <laughs> philosophy. Don't you understand? It all comes together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you were you were sent out of the Premier League for two seasons. You just couldn't win a game, and then you come back in the third season and you, you, you beat Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what it is. What a and great analogy. The Ted Lasso. Um, so. You know, you, there's obviously a history there. And you, know, you I think, were, look, you were the tastemaker for Star Trek, uh, for the next generation in particular, um, for really for a, a generation, as it were, um, people who actually read and cared about the shit. Uh, like guys like this guy, like, like me, that's how I knew you, that's how I met you, like writing all that other stuff. And I have to ask you, because, you know, in the 90s, you know, I like I was one of those idiots on on Usenet, and I would write reviews on Usenet and all these things. Right. And there are things that I kind of think about. And I'm like, do I regret that opinion? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. do do I feel bad about this, or have has my attitude about a thing changed? Do I mm. look at it differently? Right? Did I not appreciate the thing that I have? And so, what I have to ask you is, looking back at those, you know, seven seasons of capsule reviews for next yeah, year and yeah. then for Voyager. And that, do you feel that you, even just in, in, at times, like a regret over things that maybe you feel like you got wrong, like, or how you approach things? Like, like, what is that like for you? I do have some 
I don't know if it's regrets, but I, I, but more in the sense that I feel I did myself a disservice as the objective journalist who was covering the show and also the reviewer. That is a very difficult position to be in because on one hand you're covering it and, you know, people are opening up to you and they're being very candid and, um, uh, uh, giving a lot of their time. And the, and the time was something that was at a premium. So, you know, I would be there multiple days for many hours, you know, going through every episode, which was pretty extraordinary. And then, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, I'd review the episodes and in a lot of cases shit on them, you know? So that was an unpleasant, I think part of the reason we made this show about celebrating the love was because I do have, um, I feel uh, not that I was wrong. Like I, I'm glad that I said what I did about generations at the time that I said it. And and, and um, look, it's a sense of, it's a sensitive subject because it, you know I never would say, "Oh, these people were my friends." I, I you don't go into it to make these right. people your friends. You know, it was a job, and I loved it. And I, uh, you know, Star Trek meant a lot to me, but at the same time. You know, they were so generous, but you also don't want to be co-opted. You know, it's, it's it, by it, you know, and, and, and seduced. So you're only saying nice things. You don't and want I to think, a shill. And I think the reason I got so much respect at the time and subsequently was because I was honest. And even though it was, you know, sometimes it went down badly. Uh, the only th- time I think it was unfair was when Ira Bear and the Deep Space Nine people turned on me because of Deep Space because we did that Deep and Confused cover, which right. was not me, it was Chris Gore. And right. um and uh you know the cover was more like Deep and Confused. And then the the whole article was about how great the show had become. And right. my reviews were all super positive. But they couldn't get over the fact that Chris's editorial and the cover shat on Deep Space Nine. That was unfair. You know, was Ron Right when my generations review ran and I was quoting the ad for Stargate that see, go see Stargate again because instead of Star Trek seven or go see Stargate instead of Star Trek seven. He wasn't wrong to be upset, you know. Um, but to his credit, and I've said this before, you know, after a couple of years, he got over it and was, you know, when, when Free Enterprise came out, he sent me a nice bottle of Dom Perignon and all was forgiven. Uh, but, um, you know, I look, I learned a lot. I learned how hard it is to make TV. And, you know, subsequently when I started doing television myself and then became a showrunner, I think that's when I really felt like maybe I had been a little too harsh because I know how hard it is and, you know, how easy it is to fail at certain things or, or things not to turn out the way because you have too little money or too little time or COVID hits or whatever. Um and and I was like, well, you know, that was very sporting of them to be so indulgent. But it was also a different time because nobody was doing what I was. It was Starlog and, you know, um, they, the Internet wasn't a, a thing. Um, uh, uh, Entertainment Weekly and these guys, the, the mainstream print media was not taking it seriously. So I was the only one that took it seriously. I took Star Trek very seriously. And... Uh, and I think they like, you know, they like that. I like that. You know, I wrote about it like I was writing for the New York Times. Like, that's the way I always approached it. I never wrote like, to me, Cine Fantastic was not Starlog. It was not fantastic films. You know, I was writing it like I was writing for the New York Times. 
And I mean, it's so funny. I, I found this. This is Galactic Journal. This is a magazine I did uh, um, from junior high school on till my early college years. And I, I, I wrote, this is an article. This is the article from when I was on the set of Too Short a Season. The show hadn't premiered yet. Inside the Next Generation. I'm just going to read you the beginning of the article because sure. I found this today. You couldn't imagine how hard it is to get on the back of a box of Cheerios, the publicist representing Star Trek The Next Generation explained to me as he pointed at the back of the cereal box. You on it was how old when you wrote that? <laughs> this was uh, this was no, this was like a sophomore year of college. Oh, okay. So uh, on it was a picture of a young boy flanked by Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis. In the star field above them, it said, you could win a chance to appear in a Star Trek episode, and at the very least, you could find a sticker with your favorite Next Generation star inside. I nodded. It was hardly what anyone would have expected when the cameras first started the role on the pilot for Star Trek way back in 1965. But now, over 20 years later, history was being made again, not only on the airwaves, but in kitchen cabinets across America as well. I put the box back down on the table next to the water cooler. On the other side of the plywood wall separating us was the bridge of the new Starship Enterprise, where rehearsal was beginning on another scene in the latest episode of the critically acclaimed new syndicated space opera. You will jump to warp eight and I will personally lead the away team, says one of the episode's guest stars as he stretched down to the helm. That was Clayton Rohner in a short season, by the way. <laughs> Patrick Stewart rises from the captain's chair and walks to the ops position and turns. Rob Bowman, the director, shakes his head disapprovingly. He approaches Stuart. They exchange hush words, and all is well again. Stuart and LeVar Burton exchange quips as they prepare to rehearse the scene again. Denise Crosby, who plays security chief Tasha Yar, looks somewhat out of place in back of the weapons console in a white halter top as she does her makeup. The cast patiently awaits for the scene to be rehearsed again. It is here on stage 10 that the bridge of the Enterprise is housed along with the ready room and several other principal personnel quarters. And it goes on and on and on. But anyway, that's that's amazing, by the way, <laughs> um, especially like just the way that you decided to, to start that. But what comes through is how much you love it um, and the respect that you show for it. And I think, you know, a, a lot of that response that they had to you and that Brandon had to you is that, look, I mean, you know, when we talk about the things that that we love you do you were very even-handed about it um you know it was like yeah it was like sure sure there were you know episodes that you crapped on and i remember your review of of generations even though i didn't like generations very much i thought maybe you were a little too harsh but um the thing about it is a bridge that, too far that was my <laughs> review a bridge too far <laughs> a bridge too far I mean, <laughs> having having sat in a big chair you know what i mean it's yeah. um that that even-handedness that you know you occasionally hit <laughs> but then like you know it's oh my god it's you know what it is you're the ike turner of you're not the trent cram you're the ike turner <laughs> it's like I, I i still love you tina well, when I it's funny because the closest I've come to doing Star Trek was, you know, doing two seasons of Pandora for the CW. And, you know, it's funny because Star Trek was my film school. And, you know, I had a very low budget um, and it was a very hard show to make. And, uh, you know, people said, you know, how did you learn to do all this? Did you go to film school? I said, no, I covered Star Trek for seven years or whatever it was. That was my film school. And, you know, I would think about the things that I learned from talking to Michael Piller or Rick Berman or, you know, any of these people. And it really, um, uh, you know, helped me to, to understand the business at a very young age. Well, I'll, I'll say this about Brandon. Um, 
and and this is just I think really the origin of 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 my question to you in the first place, which is, you know, when you're when you're a fan, and you know, again, sort of putting myself in the head of the guy who is very excited to see all good things, to watch that that finale. But, you know, we all sort of go through this gamut of emotions about like the people who are involved. And when you're a Star Trek fan, you know who writes the episodes, you know who right. directs the episodes. Sure, I mean those things are important to you. And it was uh, it was a very popular thing to say stuff like, well, you know, like, well, Brandon doesn't care about Star Trek and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. Or to pretend that when um, there were episodes that didn't work, that they just didn't care, they weren't invested. Let me tell you something. Just just talking to Brandon tonight about all good things, um, uh, it is so obvious how much he cares, how much he cared, how much he invested uh in that show. I mean, and in ways that are, that are different because his investment is, you know, it's his, it's his personality. You know, it is his, it's what he values. It's, it's what he thinks of those characters and what he thinks is important and what he thinks is interesting. And, and none of us have to like, have to, have to bear that. Yeah, to fandom and and get judged for it. Well, and you got to remember, he was, as he said, very young at the time, and he had this persona that he put. He was making more money than he ever made in his life. You know, he didn't have a lot of time outside of the office, and you know, we did we did not help things because we did an article which he was complicit in for Sci Fi Universe called "Is Brandon Bragg of the Devil." Right. Where we leaned into this whole image, this bad boy image that he had, and he wore a smoking jacket and had a, like a cigar, and you know we did this whole photo shoot with him and Amanda, who was one of my assistant, who became a very fine writer, um, did this interview with him, and uh, and and it cemented this idea. I think that that followed him for a long time that Brandon was the devil that, you know, he hated the original <laughs> show that he didn't care about Star Trek. And I think it, you know, um, you know, I'd heard, you know, when he was doing all the um, uh, Blu-rays and the DVDs and everything, you know, people call it, Oh, it's like the Brandon Bragg apology tour. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Brandon has nothing to apologize for. I mean, he, you know, I mean, he's up there as the, you know, with these great birds, I mean, you know, with Gene and, and Michael, I mean, he ran Voyager, he created Enterprise, he ran that for, you know, three seasons. Um, you know, he did first contact, he did generate, I mean, he did some of the best episodes of Next Generation. I mean, he's, you know, he's on the Mount Rushmore of Trek creators. Yeah, he has you know? to be. Yeah. So he's he he's no devil, Jim. They say there's no devil, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's 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 funny. I mean, you know, we could we could count who these people are. I mean, it's Jerry Taylor. Obviously, it's Gene Kuhn. It's uh, you know, um, Ira. You know, you know, Ira for sure. Um, you know, Michael, Jerry. Um, uh, you know, and now Terry's one of them. Yeah, for sure, absolutely, absolutely. You know, which I, I I just love that. You know, it's 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 the next next generation. This is very full circle and like in the best possible way. Well, that's why I feel so crazy nostalgic. You know, and I said this when I went to go see the final episode of Picard and I found myself, you know, really moved by like, oh my God, this is, you know, really full circle. And, and it's the same thing, you know, I said to Brandon about the WGAT. I said, I didn't work on the show. I shouldn't, you know, it's not, you know, but yet I was very, I was always Star Trek adjacent. 
you know, right. and uh, and even more so than the people who work on the show. You know, I was there during the glory days. I mean, there was no, there was no more fervent time for Star Trek, the apex of Star Trek. I think most people agree. The height of its popularity was that seventh season when it got nominated for the Emmy. Generations was going into production. Deep Space Nine was on the air. Voyager was in development. This was, this was the height of Star yep. Trek. He's Families trying. all loved the show. People knew, the, you know, what did he say? How many people watched that finale? 30 million. 30 million people. That was the height of Star Trek. And you could yeah. say it's all been downhill since then. Yeah. I mean, so. I mean, it, it would be hard not to be. It, and it doesn't even matter, like, what was great and, and what was bad or what worked and what didn't work. Because at that particular moment in time, Star Trek was everything. But it's like we said about Star Trek Picard, right? When that... That season, that third season was always destined to do well because of how it honored um, where it came from in, in such a wonderful way. And those 30 million people, they're out there, man. Um, yeah. that, that is something that if they, I'm sure there are members of that audience who have not discovered that show yet, but they will. They mm -hmm. will. And it will remind them how they felt when they sat down to watch All Good Things. You know, it's so funny that... Um, this conversation of all good things and, and the way that you sum this up so beautifully, this almost feels like our series finale. Like, I, I, I almost feel like, okay, well, thanks for listening to Inglorious Trek. It's Sorry, been a pleasure going on this journey. And I'm, yeah, like when Darren missed Neil deGrasse Tyson as Starship Smackdown, he's like, the one time I don't go, Neil deGrasse Tyson shows up and, you know, makes the case for the Empress. It's like, well, we just, you know, Darren, I call him, well, I, I got some bad news for you, Darren. Ashley and I decided to call it. We, 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 this episode was the perfect place to end the show. And, uh, we, we're sorry you couldn't be there. <laughs> Oh my God! But we're not going to end the show. No, we're going to run this thing into the ground. Damn right we are. <laughs> <laughs> Until you send us letters begging us to stop. Because we got to do a second Lawrence Luckinbill interview at least. Oh, hell yeah, we do. Yeah, and we got a lot of we got we got some great we got some great people coming on. I can't even tell you. And and then also we'll be doing some more live shows, and there's a lot of good stuff coming up. So we hope uh, you'll. Uh, You'll, 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 you know, come on the journey with us, right? And, uh, Ashley, we're going to be, uh, doing a couple big more conventions. We got Comic Con coming in July. We got Raleigh. Yeah. Raleigh. 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 We got Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh. Uh, coming up, uh, galaxycon.com. Then we'll be in, uh, Vegas. It's a great creation, 57 year mission. Uh, so will Brandon and a lot of other people of our hundred Star Trek stars will be, and Orville stars will be coming down to the big show in Vegas. Uh, mm -hmm. and then, uh, we'll be in Austin in September and back in Columbus and, uh, a lot of exciting stuff coming up. We're going to so, be trekking to do some trekking. We're going to be trekking to do, and speaking of that, we're going to be announcing another big, uh, uh, Trexperts adjacent project that we hope you'll be interested in, but uh, it's too soon to announce. Uh, but I also do, for those of you who may not know, my uh, epic documentary uh, with Scott Mance and Roger Lay about the 19 uh, films of 1982, Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982, will be uh, having its television, world television debut on the CW this summer. So I hope you'll check it out, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that on this show. Um, but I'm very, very proud of that, and it is uh, Star Trek related because, of course, a big part of that summer was Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Hell so. yeah! 
But uh, but this is great, Ashley, and thank you for uh, carrying the uh, the extra weight with the uh, Darren uh, playing hooky. Oh, you know, it ain't heavy. He's my brother. I mean, how many times are you going to watch that fucking movie? (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's like, you got to figure, and like, and it's not just like screenings. It is how many times did he watch it when they were just putting it together? Because we all know, we've all sat in the edit bay. We know how many times we watch an episode. Yeah, exactly. I mean, once you put something to bed, like you're done, right? You you maybe watch it once and then it's like, I can't watch that ever again. Yeah, I've um, seen it 38 times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I, I haven't watched Free Enterprise in 30 years, so I totally get what, uh, not 30 years, but like 20 years. I, I totally get what um, Brandon was saying. It's like, yeah, I haven't watched this thing in 20 years. I finally, I watched it last night, so I could answer your questions. And yeah. uh, so I guess, you know, maybe Darren should wait 20 years to watch motion picture again. Yeah, um, uh, we, we look, we're so proud of him. He, they, he did such a great job on, uh, Beautiful. on that film. And it's, it's so great. And, uh, I, I hope that, um, I hope they have the opportunity or Darren has the opportunity to, uh, do it with Star Trek five, uh, because that film could really benefit because we, we've sung its praises. There's so much that's great about it. And if we just chisel around the edges, um, oh, it could really redeem the reputation of that film because there's nothing more joyful than seeing people say, that they weren't necessarily a huge fan of motion picture and they see what Darren and the team, uh, David and Mike did. And they're like, uh, Oh, I really love this movie now. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's just one of those things where it's like, you know, I've never been a guy who's like, wow, I want to do a fan edit of something. (laughs) Right. No, me neither. It's like, I like. I kind of want to do. You a know thing. why I ask? Because we're professionals. That's exactly. why. That's why we because exactly. we don't do those kind of things. It's like the fanboy says a thing in the back of our head, and then we're like, "Shut up." That's the secret to being a successful professional. It's ignore your inner fanboy because we could have easily gone down that road and been distracted. It, I'm not saying it's not cool to people who do it. I think it's right. great, but it's a distraction. It's that's a distraction. Right. And, and as and, the Joker uh, once said, "If you're good at something, never do it for free." <laughs> exactly but uh this was great and of course um we hope you'll uh, uh rate us five stars on whatever podcast platform you listen to us and uh to get every episode to be sure to get every episode of the trexperts as well as uh, our uh deck 78 which has some really special episodes coming up you'll want to subscribe on trexperts plus it's not a lot of money it's 4.99 to get a month full of uh great content and uh it really more than that it helps support the show uh, and, and pay for, you know, hosting and, uh, mixing and, you know, uh, uh all kinds of great stuff. And speaking of mixing, <laughs> what? That's a caterer budget. The caterer budget. Yeah. And, uh, we're so grateful to Mark Rivera, who continues to make us so great. Peter Holmstrom, uh, producer and archivist and, uh, Zach Raggetts, um, assistant to the producer and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, future, uh, married man. So congratulations, Zach. Yeah. Uh, is that a secret or? Uh, no, no, not, is well, now. certainly not anymore, but it's not a secret. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay, and you know what? You and, the, and his, his bride also knows that they're getting married. Which oh, is good. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. And of course you can follow us and, and share your own thoughts about all good things on Twitter and Instagram and in glorious Trek and for glorious Trek experts on Facebook and, uh, grow stronger through the sharing particularly when you're talking about the Lawrence Luckenbill episode. That's right. So any, anyway, on that happy note, I would like to thank everybody for once again joining us for another supersized episode of Inglorious Trexperts, even without Darren. 
Yeah. They put up with us and they, you know, because we'll find out that people really tune in to listen to Darren or they tune in for the show because we'll, we'll see what the ratings are. Uh, this Darren less episode. Maybe we can recast Darren like they did on, uh, I dream of genie. Well, you know what? His name is Darren. He's pretty screwed to be That's perfectly honest. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> we get We're like, going to start sergeant to come in and. <laughs> Everybody keeps joking about replace, you know, that I'm leaving, but maybe, maybe we're going to recast Darren. Yeah, maybe we'll Darren Darren. <laughs> <laughs> now he'll be back next week, and we can't wait. It's not, it's not truly Inglorious Trexpress without Darren Docterman. So hopefully, uh, yeah, he'll be back from uh, the 23rd century um, next week on his Vulcan shuttle. And uh, on behalf of Ashley Miller, myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking Ingloriously, of course. And this is where Darren would go. Tss.